Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for TSM Press Box. Opinions, analysis, and the occasional awkward silence. Here's your host, Jonah Siegel. Welcome back. Another episode of Believe in the Press Row. Jonah Siegel here on a Friday mid-morning, late morning, I should say, here in Seattle. Sun is shining. We take these days like gold when that happens. It's not cloudy. It's not dark. And uh, really excited to, uh, we're going to go into a different area today with the, the current ongoings of the labor discussions, if you will, um, in the NHL with super agent, former uh, NHLPA executive attorney, uh, and really good guy, Ian Pulver. Ian, how are you today? Uh, great, Jonah. I wish we had a sunny day up here in Toronto, but... It's snowy, rainy, um, uh, gray, and um, good to be inside, but we've been inside for nine months, so every day is almost the same, but uh, doing great. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. And I, I hope you and your family are, uh, are, are, are keeping sane and uh, everybody's healthy. Uh, same for you, and yes, they are, and uh, I hope everybody out there respects COVID and um, is doing uh, the best they can. So you have like a real, the, the reason I think you make for an, an incredibly interesting guest given where we are right now, um, is you have a really unique perspective given your background. Um, you have a unique and I think surprising to many uh, undergrad degree. Um, which probably lends itself to, to your career as an agent. Um, but you then went to law school in, in, out in BC, and I can totally understand why you went there. UBC is one of the most beautiful places in the country. Um, my understanding is that you got to take a class or a guest lecture with one Brian Burke, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, and you wrote a law school thesis dissertation or something on the collective bargaining agreement, which led to um, you doing what I did. Like when I graduated from Vermont a hundred years ago, email didn't exist. I didn't write a thesis, but I wrote a letter, a handwritten letter, if you remember those, to every professional sports team, basically begging to work for free. Uh, you, you sent out what was probably a very smart document around the league um, including to one Bob Goodnow, which I think led to a, a, a timely discussion at, at the draft that year in, in Vancouver. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you just said a whole lot, but a lot of what, what you said shaped and, and got me ready for my career. Um, the one interesting thing that you mentioned is that my undergrad in sociology um, at the University of Western Ontario uh, little did, did I know, um, especially when I became an agent, um, um, paid off for me. Um, it did help me along the way understanding all the players when I worked for them at the union, but 
um, that sociology degree um, kicked in big time in agent work um, and is, is, is a prominent part of the practice. Um, yes, I, I, I prepared a paper, uh, I mailed it out like you just said you did, um, stamped it, sent it out to 21 teams. Um, you know, researching the paper was off of microfiche in the library and textbooks, newspapers. And written um, notes. Brian Burke charged the, the whole thing up by being a um, great guest lecturer when he was the assistant GM at the University of British Columbia when he was with Vancouver. And he used to come in and um, he was just like he was back uh, now, back then, and um, was a great fiery lecturer, told great stories and really motivated me to want to work in the um, hockey world, which through the paper, through the law course of Joe Weiler and meeting Bob Goodnow, who had like a professor redlined the paper. When I first met him, he pulled it out and I couldn't believe it. I almost like was ready to throw up, but he opened it up and it was red marked like an old law professor would, or, a, you know, um, as you know, in the law of, of uh, when you're an associate in a law firm, and you hand a paper to a, 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 an older lawyer who just destroys it. So I had that right out of the get-go for Bob, and then I worked for him for 15 years. Yeah, I mean, so incredible. Like, I, I can absolutely see how your degree becomes even more relevant today than when you started as an agent because the, the modern-day hockey parent and the modern day hockey player has evolved dramatically from when you and I were kids to probably even when you started like that. that I would imagine that the, the relationship that you need to establish with parent, advisor, or whoever is in that role and player today has, has changed more uh, in the last five or six years than from the first day you started. Yeah, it did. I mean, big time. Uh, it has because of real time and um, real time information, Twitter, um, Facebook, whatever you may be, Instagram, uh, podcasts, everybody is hearing from everyone. And it's incredible to strip away all the information that the families are hearing, the players are hearing and drill down to give them what they need to hear. And um, so yes, modern technology has really, you know, played a significant role in the evolution of um, being a player, um, being an agent, um, managing a hockey team, managing expectations. Um, it's incredible now, even in the collective bargaining dynamic compared to 04, in 94 and then when we took the guys on strike in 92 um all these forces that come into play real time you know is it true is it not true is it fake news to borrow the term down south of the border thanks and we, we try and avoid that thanks <laughs> <laughs> and so the uh nhl and the nhlpa are battled with it the agents are, the players are, everybody is. And um, it just makes your life um, a little bit more um, challenging, complicated, and uh, exciting at the same time. All right, take a, take a deep breath there. 
the NFL is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Tons of games, meaningful games right now from game spreads, totals, team players, coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. There's always the online casino as well. Head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag. So we talked offline. We were originally going to talk about current state of CBA talk, but let, let's, let's continue this dialogue because I think we're actually at a good point. So, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we didn't talk about uh, that has changed in real time is the money's gotten significant. I mean, we're not NBA, we're not NFL, we're not Major League Baseball, but the numbers in hockey are now significant. And the stakes are, you know, guys who are playing hockey professionally don't have to think about the summer job, right? Like that, the, the numbers have also changed dramatically. And just having a kid who played in the GTHL, the number of uh, psychopathic parents who think their kids actually legitimately have a shot is insane. Um, but, and I think part of it is because the price of college has gone up dramatically. And then that big prize, you know, playing pro hockey, the numbers are so big. Yeah, I mean, so so I guess I, I'm just saying, like, I think that adds to it. So my question, I guess, is here we sit. Uh, most kids, from my understanding, really haven't played any hockey since February or March. Um, I, here in Seattle, the leagues are around. They, um, they're skating, or they were until the most recent shutdown. Uh, they weren't playing games. You have a roster of players uh, most of them very well-known NHL guys. So they're not, they, you know, they had the, the bubble and then they left if they were in it. If not, they're on the sidelines. But there is a host of, of talent that is sitting idly. Um, and yet the expectation is going to be, we're going to get back to playing. And where is that? How do we fill that gap of talent? So, so a couple things. One, it's, I can tell you from top down or bottom up, if you're a hockey player, um, this is absolutely crushing um, psychologically um, and, and everything that attaches to being an athlete and an entertainer, but let's stay on the athlete side. I just had a conversation with a college athlete whose um, NCAA division one program has been delayed and delayed and delayed. Some teams like the university of Wisconsin have played eight games. Other teams haven't played any. And they were supposed to play, and now it's in December, and now they don't know if they're going to play for until January. And they're, the, the, the players, the athletes are getting crushed. And, like, the ball keeps on getting shifted. And they're giving the ball. They're taking it away. They're missing practice. And that's at the college level. Um, in here, Toronto, case in point, the GTHL, the OMHA in Ontario – um, completely shut down. Like no one is playing games. There are rogue games going out on, on under the radar. Um, teams are practicing in small groups um, at best. Um, rinks in Toronto are set down and shut down. And yeah, I, I can only imagine a parent and a family group family unit in the minor midget year of the OHL draft. Um, they've been going since six years old. 
until 15 years old. And this is devastating. It's crushing. Um, and, you know, there's no light right now at the end of the tunnel for any of these families. And it's really taken an, a, its toll. Um, hockey will go on. Life will go on. Everybody will come out of it. You know, the OHL draft, um, people are asking about. The NHL draft, people are asking about. Um, a college entrance, people are asking about. And so it, it's far-reaching in the hockey world. Um, and you spend a lot of time talking to families, to players. Um, you have to paint the picture that you have time to do certain things to make yourself stronger, faster, and ever, and more importantly, smarter. Um, because that's the ultimate separator when it comes to who's going to make it or who isn't. Who are the smart ones who can figure it out? So yeah, Jonah, it's hits across the board. Um, and it impacts a lot of people. So the, the problem in my mind is that time doesn't stop. And we're going to get into a discussion about the labor issues right now, but let, let's park that, continue to park that for a second. We're sitting here, it's the beginning of December. Let's say that the rumor this morning that they're going to start January 15th and wrap up in July. Um, let's assume, again, that's no fans. And let's say the trickle down to the other leagues isn't the same. Like just because the NHL can put on a season doesn't mean that all the leagues you just talked about can put on a season. So the idea then, as I understand, is they need to be done by July because someone in their infinite wisdom thinks they're going to pull off the Olympics in Japan. And I was there just before the shutdown and that would shock me. But nevertheless, I'll, I'll play along. So we get to July and this thing called the draft is going to happen. What are you telling the kids that we're supposed to get or hoping to get? Like, what's the body of work? Is the hope that the scouts and the people on the teams have seen enough? Like there's enough body of work from kids who are hoping to be ready this year. Like I would think that kids in that final year, I'm going to call it the senior year of eligibility, if you will, there's a lot of development and a lot of things that has to happen and be seen. Like this is trouble. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is trouble. It, we'll have to see where we are. So the Quebec Major Junior League has played between eight and 10 games. Um, USHL has played between two and seven games. The Water Blue, Waterloo Blackhawks have played two games. I think the Fargo four, seven. Um, the the Ontario League, no games. The Western Hockey League, no games. Um, and then there's the worldwide U20 is shut down now in Finland, so on and so forth. I think that all the powers of hockey will have to see where we are in February, March, April. There could be small showcases going on um, for the OHL draft, for the Western Hockey League draft, for the Quebec draft um, in North America. Um, the NHL draft remains to be seen. Uh, will there be enough body of work for those players? Um, would a 19-year-old draft be considered for one year to back everything up? I don't know. Those are things that, you know, will be discussed at the NHL, NHLPA level. Um, there is still hope with the vaccine coming in. Um, more so in the States than in Canada, because we may have some distribution problems <laughs> up here. Um, I think they forgot to build distribution facilities and 
logistics, but that's for another day. Um, but all those things will have to be um, blocked off. I was watching online um, Michigan Penn State last night. Um, I've, uh, I, I have some interest in those games. Um, uh, Michigan has uh, Owen Power, who I do not represent or advise. Um, top player for this year's draft, but you know, is it enough online? I'm not sure. Those are things that are all going to have to be worked out. Let me just address quickly the flip side, and, and there's no scientific answer. But so there's the exposure component. But what about the development component? Kids who need to advance, who need to improve, who need to play. You know, you you and in, in the league drafted a whack of kids this year, and everybody moved up the system. And that created an opportunity for someone who's probably gone from second line to first line or was hoping to. And that increase, suddenly somebody gets a shot at the power play. And by the way, that's at the top level and the bottom because it all, the tide rises, right? So graduating class moves on. How concerned are you from a developmental perspective that that gap is enormous? Um, well, I mean, I guess I would say this, that other than Russia, for the most part, that's just plowing through COVID and, you know, in full steam ahead, KHL, MHL, VHL, you know, junior leagues, um, the evolution of the player or the, the development and evolution of the player worldwide is a little bit staggered. Finland, Sweden, I guess, are playing games and more opportunities. But in North America alone, everybody's kind of sort of in the same boat, right? Yeah. So, you know, practice and, you know, working out on and off the ice isn't gameplay. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's in, at least in North America, I don't know if anybody's advancing or declining based on lack of play, because for the most part, no one's playing. Um, but there's still hope from January to July that there'll be enough evolution. The one other point I'll make is that NCAA, and I say this a lot to um, hockey parents who are thinking about, well, should we go play in the OHL where we can get 68 games, you can get playoffs, pro schedule, or do I go to the NCAA and play less games, more practice? And sometimes I'll say, well, you know, it didn't hurt Michael Jordan or, you know, some of these superstars in basketball to just play 32 games, right? And so, you know, maybe 40 games in the OHL or in the Q or the Western Hockey League is enough for one year and same for college and so on and so forth. Time will tell. Yeah, I just, I, I listen, I, as a parent, uh, can't help but feel awful and, and like I said and I've said this numerous times provided that you have food on your table and you have a roof over your head there, there's people who are much more afflicted that are in my thoughts and prayers right now assuming oh there's no that, question about it that, yes assuming that being the case yeah this this group of families that uh, have invested time and money in a in a hope in a hope and desire either as a, as a ticket to an education that they can afford or to, you know, hitting lightning and actually getting drafted and the opportunity to play. Like it's devastating. And, and I think it's, uh, it's probably made your job and your fellow agents job much more difficult and also much more important 
Uh, and uh, I would imagine the discussions you need to have either with potential clients or actual clients is changing and evolving again. Um, yeah, I can tell you that my consultants in Ontario and Quebec and uh, Minnesota, Finland and myself were all, and I'm sure as all other agents are as well, are spending an inordinate amount of time um, answering the same questions with the same answer, you know, hang in there, you know, no one knows and um, everything will work out if, if work out in, in due time. So let's, let's pivot to where we are. There's lots of noise going on right now, but I think, I think what would be helpful and I think why your perspective is, is really important to understand is big advocate of, if you want to understand where we are, you got to kind of understand where we came from. Um, you joined the PA at a very interesting time. Uh, you worked hand in hand with Bob Goodnow. You fought, I would imagine, hand in hand with him to avoid the salary cap. Um, when you walk through that process with him, um, you, you were there for 15 years, I believe, two if not three lockouts. Um, and at the end of the day, that was the hill that you guys wanted to die on. Um, right. Just briefly, because we could spend hours on the history of it. What was the thought process? Why were you guys so opposed to the cap? What was the concern and what was the argument? Well, I mean, stripping it down, we, our philosophy was um, players should not earn less than what they're worth. And um, everybody should be able to go to work. Um, all the players should go to work and be paid by um, owners who um, aren't don't have caps on themselves um, what the owners thought the player was worth in his particular market uh, particular time based on certain rules we didn't want to put any artificial mechanisms um, over the earning power or potential of a player um, because really for the most part you know, in, in a capitalistic society, you know, um, lawyers aren't generally capped, businessmen aren't capped, you know, uh, plumbers aren't capped, um, you know, but having said that, um, doctors in, in, in Canada are, um, there's capitation and, you know, it it's, wasn't something that we believed in. The baseball players didn't believe in it. Um, the football players, uh, capitulated no pun intended yep. um and the basketball players a lot earlier in their careers and we saw the um the way the cop operated in other sports and for a long the longest time um we held that ground through 92 strike 94 lockout 2004 for one full year and um eventually um others thought they had to cut a deal that involved the cap um bob goodnow moved on and eventually i didn't subscribe to the philosophies of the union leader and i resigned myself but that that in its essence we didn't believe just like coaches aren't capped or managers aren't capped or owners aren't capped why should a player be capped that was the philosophy so safe to say i think uh you're the expert that the only thing that the cap really did 
was to help ensure franchise value? Uh, well, I mean, yes, franchise value has certainly increased dramatically since 2004 um, in a great way. Um, the league got their cap and, you know, the business has seemingly thrived. Um, it's actually um, increased franchise value and to some degree helped franchises stay in Arizona, in Carolina, in South Florida. Um, it makes makes it somewhat viable and you know the players um, are asked to help finance um, through the escrow system and the cap to keep those franchises alive despite lack of attendance um, so the league accomplished their mission um, the owners did and everybody's living under it so you know you now have the benefit of hindsight you know what you were proposing back in the day or back in the days through multiple negotiations. How do you think the world, have you ever, I mean, I'm sure you have. How, how different would things look today, do you think, if we hadn't gone down that route to the Cavs? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, um, probably there'd be a team in Quebec City. There'd be a second team probably in Toronto. Um, but, you know, that, 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 I, I believe that, you know, just like anything else, uh, the survival of the fittest, the law of the jungle would have, you know, played out and it probably would look like baseball, um, you know, because in baseball, they, they have reportedly, you know, save and accept the pandemic year have done quite well um, and they don't have a cap um, and they have a tax system, which we were proposing, but, you know, I'm not really here to say, it's hard to say, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, now we've been living under the cap system for 15 years and um, you know, it has its good things and bad things. And I think donors would agree with that as well. So there's, there's much smarter people that dive deep into numbers to decimal points and the like that I have no interest in doing. So I just want like, it'd be awesome to kind of level set what is going on in, in roundabout terms and numbers. So the big lever, right, is that at the end of a year, what is supposed to happen is, is some degree of true up of, that's based on a 50-50 split on hockey revenue, correct? That's correct. Hockey-related defined revenues in you know, this 400-page document, <laughs> uh, Article 50, defines exactly what goes into hockey-related revenues. It's calculated out. They look at the player costs, which involve um, everything from salary to signing bonus to buyout money to all forms of related compensation benefits. And they see how much the players got, how much the owners got, and it should come out to 50-50. Right. And roughly, most recently, it sounds like that is a $5 billion business. Roughly. Roughly. Yeah. Give or take. Yes. So um, the, the dirty word pre-corona was escrow. And escrow basically operates as a mechanism to withhold part of the salary paid to the player in case there is a shortfall and that things are not 50-50 to the, to the owner's benefit. 
So if there's a shortfall, you've, you've built a war chest from each payroll and that is used to meet any gap between the 50-50. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, that, that's the true up or the, the, they'll escrow a certain amount, they'll project out. Um, and if the revenues um, meet, if the revenues exceed, then the players will get their escrow back or a portion thereof. Right. So yes, the escrow is the buffer, the insurance policy for the owners. And, you know, it's been, it's been applied since 2004. And the, play, the players hate it because they sign a deal when they get their paycheck, they see their various government withholdings and then there's an escrow withholding They're like, holy crap, where did my paycheck go? I mean, that that's in essence, the complaint, correct? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if the players, the players bargained for it back in 04. Um, and then again in 11, 12 and, or, or thereabouts. And, and then most recently, and I, I don't, I, I don't, I would say that the players are accepting of escrow to a certain degree. The higher it is, the more they hate it. Um, but that anybody would would feel that way. Of course, players are hoping that the revenues grow, um, you know, exponentially and outstrip the escrow. And maybe one day the owners will have to pay the players more money. But that's just the reality of the system. Um, you know, and so you have to live with it. Sometimes, uh, frankly, since day one, I've all argued that the higher the escrow um, sometimes means that the players could come out making more money because the cap limits are higher. And if you end up doing the math, a player could earn more money despite perhaps paying more escrow. You have to drill down into the mathematics, but if the cap's higher and a player plays, let's say 10% of what he's earning, at the end of the day, his take-home money may be greater if the cap was lower and he was paying 6% escrow. So sometimes escrow is okay if it comes out that way. So we, we fast forward and we get to... February-ish, March, I think it was, this, this disaster happens and it sounds like all via Zoom, the two parties get together and they agree on a deal. Uh, again, complicated, based on what I understand that the players have agreed to accept a reduction in their salaries to 72%. So instead of a million bucks, you're getting 720. Rough. I mean, again, other stuff going on. There's other um, other things down the road in terms of repayment and all that. And I want to talk about that. But in essence, that's what they agreed to. So in the player's mind, if they came back this year, they would be getting, no matter how many games they would play, and no matter how many butts were in seats, they'd be making 72% of their salaries. Accurate? Uh, yes, except that if, if for it was signed, I believe in in um, July, um, this seventy-one page document uh, called the Memorandum of Understanding. Um, I, I think that's fairly accurate. I think that if you know they had a vaccine in place that you know was everybody had and fans returned 
in full starting in January, um, you know, it could have worked the other way where escrow was, was, would be less than the 20%, I believe that they've agreed to um, give back this year, plus the 10% salary deferral. So there were mechanisms in that agreement that dealt with if things go well, then the cap could actually go up. And there's also a mechanism that says, if things are worse than we thought, uh, this might get extended beyond six years to a seventh. That's correct. Yeah, they built in um, some uh, double and triple insurance policies along the way. And, you know, um, to uh, Don Fair's credit and Gary Bettman's credit, no one this was all new this like we're in a pandemic and they're bargaining over uncertainty extreme and they're trying to craft what's best so that the players could return to play um part of return to play was the players gave up um their hundred last 140 million dollars due and owing to them they went into a bubble um they started to play uh, finish Stanley Cup awarded and off season goes down. So, so here, here in comes the legal doctrine of good faith versus bad faith. So the, the players have done everything they were asked of and probably more in good faith. They sign an agreement, which you have in your hand, 48 some pages. And yes, you may say that things have either deteriorated, changed, or not progressed, what have you be, but the crux of it seems to be right now in that area, and that is there is a massive chasm between WTF, we had a deal. We met with you in good faith. We negotiated in good faith. We acted in good faith. We performed in good faith, and now four months later, you're saying, and I don't care about the semantics of how you're saying it, uh, we want to revisit the terms. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's playing out in the media one way. Um, Until you've been in the boardrooms, until you've been in a meeting with Gary Bettman and Don Fair to see what they're discussing, um, hard to characterize good faith, bad faith. Um, you know, what sometimes gets out in the media, um, gets leaked out and, you know, there's broken telephone, not sure. Uh, I can't really comment on whether it's good faith or bad faith. What's been reported is, is that the league wants more relief. That would seem to me be, you know, um, on its surface, um, questionable but like it's hard to say i mean we we negotiated a 92 agreement 94 agreement and 2004 and before the ink was dry on on those we we had differences of opinion so much so back in um 1992 um i was gonna pull out the 92 agreement um we negotiated with the league um Uh, something for the first time across the table, we negotiated unrestricted free agency for group five NHL players, 10 years in the league, earning less than the average salary. You could be an unrestricted free agent. John Ziegler looked at us and said, for the first time ever, 
we are going to give unrestricted free agency over the bargaining table. No Andy Messer Smith, no lawsuits. You got it. We said, great. They said, great. Right. So we go and start drafting the collective agreement and we said 10 years in the league, less than the average league salary. We went to the, the draft it, the lawyers on the, on the NHL side and myself and Mike associates, we looked at each other and said, well, what's the average, how do you calculate average league salary? And we, the ink wasn't even dry. We had no definition of average league salary. And so we ended up, um, before arbitrator George Nicolau for weeks um, the, um, grieving over what the definition of how to calculate that was. And so it's not entirely unheard of to have disputes over a document. They possibly on the other side think one thing, the PA thinks one thing, and hopefully, you know, Gary Batman and Don Fair, who both have an enormous, a lot of experience will work it out and um, the players will get what they think is right. And the owners will get what they think they're, they're entitled to, but there is a signed document. So, yeah. So it seems to me that a big part of the, at least public outcry, if you will, certainly from some of your colleagues, uh, one in particular is a deal is a deal is a deal and players aren't allowed to come back and try and hold out for more, you, you're not dealing with clean hands. That, that, so let's assume that's the case. What it seems to me, and I'm just curious whether I'm just dumbing this down, is that the challenge is you have a model set up to split revenue and you've got one mechanism that's gonna guarantee the players 72% and the, 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 the resulting revenue could be so low that the amount of money owed by the players at the end, whatever that end looks like, could be significant. Um, so much so that it could stagger growth. So that when you, the agent, go to the teams to try and negotiate free agents in coming seasons, the pie is gonna be increasingly small to, to drive and grow the business. Is that somewhat of an accurate assessment of what the league is saying? I, I, can't, I, don't, I don't know that, but, it, you know, no question that whatever isn't made whole in year one carries over throughout the course of the agreement, see where they are at the end, and it'll either trigger a seventh year um, of this agreement or it won't trigger anything and there'll be a whole world of hurt going on to figure out how to go forward. Um, hopefully... You know, the new TV deal will kick in. Hopefully Seattle in your backyard will um, be great and everything will over time work itself out and, um, you know, everybody will share in the success. So one lot, this is actually a specific question and I'm hoping you can answer it, but I know it gets kicked down, the, down to next year, next year, next year, right? If a guy retires, does, does like, is he part of the repayment at the, at the, is, like, is there a true up, right? Like if Joe Thornton retires this year, could they look to him down the road and say the gap in escrow, like we withheld 8%, we should have withheld 10. You need to pay back into the kitty. Like if somebody retires, is that how it works? 
um, you know, the devil is in the details of, of this document. And I, I, I have, I'm waste. I'm more than one stop removed to answer that <laughs> question. Other than I can tell you based on my experience, you know, Joe Thornton may be in the Cayman Islands, you know, sipping a pina colada in six years. I can't see them sending a bill to Joe Thornton to get money out of his Bank of America account or wherever <laughs> it is to help help um, offset the um, the current collective agreement seven years ago. So I don't know. I mean, that's that's beyond me. Um, in terms of how that all is going to be worked out. So philosophically, then it seems that when they talk about a repayment, it's going to come down to the future players to take less or a different type of deal to make up whatever that gap is. Yeah, I mean, similar to um, um, what happened, I believe, my uh, after the 0405 lockout, there was a rollback salaries. There was a rollback we were involved in. And so, you know, it's easy to say the future players, but the agreement in seven years will be what the agreement says. Maybe the salary cap will be um, X minus Y, um, you know, and the owners won't have to pay as much. Maybe the owners will only offer the players 43%, um, but instead of 50 or the players may be, maybe the players, um, get locked out and stay out and end up with an agreement that gives them 57% again. Who knows? I, I don't know. Well, this has been uh, fascinating as, as I knew it would be um, on both, on both sides. Like I think what's happening in real time, you know, rumors this morning of a, a January 15th date. It seems, I love this term because we hear it every time there's one of these things going on. The parties have moved on to less difficult decisions and discussions and avoiding that the big one. So they're talking about schedule length and schedule date while the financial discussions are on hold. Um, I think we both agree that the sides are gonna figure this out because whatever the percentage is of some number is better than 100% of zero and it's in everybody's right. best interest to play. Assuming and, it's safe you know, to the, so. the owners have a collect, uh, the owners have a, a cap system I think that Gary Bettman wants and his owners want to play and I'm sure the, all the players want to play and hopefully they'll figure something out. Well, this has been uh, really interesting. Again, fascinating to hear what's going on and on the player side from the parent and family side for yet to be players and uh, really appreciate you taking the time and hoping that we can, uh, break bread over some of, uh, Toronto's famous bros barbecue that I, I hear you're a, a big fan of and, and major subscriber to. If you're on, if you're in Toronto and you want a good uh, rib meal with great sides, uh, go on Instagram and check out Bros Barbecue. Um, fresh, great barbecue right from the backyard, and um, um, there's no finer chef than Bros Barbecue. And you know, you, you do have to deal with a little attitude from Bro from time to time, but. The food is the food is good, and uh, we both endorse it without hesitation. And bro will tell you it's the best in Toronto. Yes. <laughs> well, I really appreciate doing this, Ian. I, th I think it's I think it's been really helpful and uh, timely. And uh, hopefully, we can enjoy some ribs when I make it up there uh, post Corona, and we can maybe watch some hockey together. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.